Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. Professor Sar Masayahu Israul joins us again around the podcast table. He is the founder and host of the Leading by History podcast. He's a curriculum writer, adjunct professor, and lecturer in history for K-12 through spaces. And he gave us a really good, thorough run-through of some important distinctions in terminology as we try to figure out the history of Judaism as experienced by people in Africa. If you missed it, hit pause on this episode and go listen to it and then come right back. It's really interesting. Last week, as Messiahu and I talked, I kept thinking about a conversation I had last year with Vince Bantu. You may recall our discussion about the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to the south and west into Africa and north and east into Syria. History we know little of because we tend to focus on the travels of Paul and the establishment of the church in Europe. So I was having a deja vu moment this week, coming in contact with a lot of history I did not know very well. I'm familiar-ish with some of the Jewish exiles and the slow return of some of the Jews back to the land of their ancestors and the further spread of Jews throughout the Roman Empire. But I realized that my understanding of the Israelite and Jewish spread into Egypt and then further throughout the African continent is sadly minuscule. So I asked Masayahu if he could give us a synopsis like what Vince Bantu did of that massive history. Well, let me first say that when we talk about this spread of Christianity, because I think this helps, again, to contextualize the perspective of Black Jews or Jews of African descent, is that when we talk about the spread of Christianity, and then we talk about developments of pockets of Christianity within Africa or, or Christianity coming out of Africa, I found in my studies that there are people around the world who use different terminologies and I would have a question about what is meant by the spread of Christianity out of Africa. Was it actually Christianity as we understand it today, or was it more messianist, right, in, in its approach and, ah. and, and really a part of a Judaic approach? And so I asked that because, you know, I knew a man from Nazareth. And I used to talk with him. He was a grandfather of one of my students. And I used to go visit him. And I said, are you Nasara? You know, which is the Arabic word for Christian. You know, Christians are being persecuted in places in the Middle East, in, you know, Iraq and in other places where they put the noon, the letter noon on their doors, uh, which represents Nasara, right? Which is rooted in the term Nazarene, Right. But then there's a group of people called Messihiyin in Arabic. And so this gentleman told me, I'm not Nasara, I'm Messihiyi, 
You know, I'm Masihiyin. Huh. I'm part of the Masihiyin. And so I'm saying, I'm, you know, I'm a young man at this time, still growing. You know, I'm, I'm early in my teaching career and I'm, I'm sitting at, you know, on this man's couch and at his feet proverbially, you know, every weekend or so just to go and visit and hear the stories from the land of Israel. And so he wanted me to make a stark difference between Nasara and Masihiyin. He wanted it to be clear that he was not Nasara, right? I didn't know enough at that time to pose the questions that I would today, but there was a a distinction made. So modern Western qualifications and conflations are founded in this general typification, this organization of people and ideas into these groupings, right? And so this creates like stereotyping and oversimplification, which misses the mark Yes. Of non-traditional, non-Western, pre-modern ideas, right? Yeah. And so what was the word used for Christian in those parts of Africa? And which ex- what was the experience of this religious phenomenon for the people? Is there a catch-all term? And was it Christianity per se, which developed in Africa? Or as I said, this messianist approach to Judaism inspired by a Jewish Messiah? So that's number one. Secondly, We can discuss some of the griot narratives and oral traditions of African people with a link to the ancient Jews. And I think that's important. For example, the Ethiopian Jews will say, and they're wrongly called falasha. Falasha is a term of degradation. It means landless or stranger. Mm. So we shouldn't refer to Ethiopian Jews as falasha. They call themselves Beta Israel. So that should be the terminology that we use. So Beta Israel says that they have this Judaic kingdom being established by one of the sons of Solomon, right? And in their book called the Kebra Nagast, which is the their origin story, right? I keep a copy of that myself. It's a fascinating book. They talk about how Solomon was with the queen of Sheba, Makeda, and it said he gave her all that she desired. And they interpret that in a romantic way and say that there was a son born from this called Menelik, right? And Menelik was sent to Ethiopia to live with his mother, but that Solomon provided soldiers and priests to also go. And this is how the idea of the narrative of the Ark of the Covenant is still in Ethiopia today. And to this day, they guard it with a machine gun. There's a priest that's there, and they will kill you if you try to step into that place, right? So you have to understand that even though there may be Coptic Christians, if you will, that are making these claims to the Solomonic dynasty, that's why I posed the question about Christianity. Yeah. Or was it really a Messianic Judaism, right? That's uh, so as good. So then you also have the Igbo and the Igbo of Nigeria. Some have you know, interpreted the term Igbo to be uh, a an Africanization of the term Hebrew, right? Mm. So the Igbo say that they are descendants from those Jews who, after the release from bondage in Egypt, decided they didn't want to follow along with the other tribes and sort of moved in a different way and moved closer to going, you know, down into the Sinai, into the African areas of, you know, starting with Egypt. And, you know, so it was sort of like they didn't choose to go across with everyone else, but they just sort of stayed 
on you know African soil, if you will, even though we know that uh, Canaan land is on the same tectonic plates as Africa. So right. many will call it nor- Northeastern Africa. But, but, but they believe that they descend from Jews who got, or, or some say they got lost in process. There's some narratives different between different Igbo, Igbo uh, groups. You also have the Akan from whom I descend, right? On my mother's side, how ironically, you know, I had my DNA done by African ancestry and they use matrilineal DNA that goes back 3000 years. So, you know, the Akan even today have a subgroup called the Sefwi who practice Judaism today, right there in Ghana. European Jews have gone in and I don't think they've done too much for them personally. I think they could have done a lot more than giving them a little riggedy little, you know, Torah scroll that they sit on a chair. I think there's much more that could be done. But the bottom line is that they've made contact with European Jews today because of the Internet and other things. And so now they're practicing more of a more modern kind of Judaism. But their elders say that they flowed like the rivers from the east coming straight out of Jerusalem and moving across the Sahel, across the Sahara area, and, you know, moving through North Africa into those areas in West Africa, right? So, you know, those are some of the oral traditions that come from African folks who say that they are Jews. And remember, you've got a group in the Senegalese bush. They're also known as Bani Israel. And they try to keep a low profile because they are Muslim and they don't want to be identified with Jews, but they say that that's their cultural heritage, but they don't tell many people because it will cause them to be persecuted in a land of Muslims. So we see Judaism and the Judaic faith and Hebrewisms moving from Egypt, which is in Africa. (laughs) and moving down from Egypt, going all the way down into Uganda with the Abu Yudaya Jews and the Limba of South Africa who had DNA Mm. testing that showed that they carried the Kohen, you know, gene, just like any of the other European Jews. Right. And so you see, if you're looking at a map of Africa, this beeline going straight down from Egypt down to South Africa, but then straight across North Africa into this region of Western Africa, centering around this place called the Niger River, which we have evidence of folks from early times saying that the people there were Jews. So Hmm. there actually is, you know, there's a map that you can find in the Stanford exhibits. It's called, you know, parts of Africa in this area of the equator. It's a map from 1772. And you actually see a place called Judah on the map. Right. And it's called it's called Judah. So anyway, there's a lot that goes on. I'll say lastly on that, that there's a book called The Earth and Its Inhabitants written in 1892. And Elsa Recluse in this book on page 267 says, East of the Great Popo begins the Dahomey territory guarded by the important town of Glehwe, known to Europeans by the various names of Fida, Heveda, Waida, Wida. The old writers called it Judah and its inhabitants were said to be Jews. So. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. So. 
All of this is really interesting to me. And I would say over the last uh, maybe three years, I've been doing a lot more to educate myself on various versions of storytelling about the transatlantic trade mm. and what happened to Africans on this North American soil. And then the development into then the African-American church. So the development of the blues and then the gospels music and then the church movement and all these things. And I have not heard a single peep about African Jews coming over in the transatlantic slate, but I imagine that is true. So what do we know about Africans and what the transatlantic slave trade did for the development of these congregations on North American soil? Excellent question. And I know the specific show you're talking about uh, with with uh, Skip Gates, right? Yes. Was one, he did one on the black church. Yes. But there's something in that documentary that most people missed. And I took screenshots. Oh. You see women from the Nation of Islam and you briefly see an image of Noble Juali. Now, why is this significant? Because, again, that's my area of expertise as a, a expertise yeah. as a historian are these turn of the 20th century African-American religious nationality groups. And those are two of them, right, that were adamant about black people not being colored, not being Negro, but actually having a greater connection to specific African cultures rooted in West Africa specifically and Africa collectively. And Noble Jali is the founder of a group called the Moorish Science Temple of America. And if you take a look at some of the early documents from those Black or African-American photographers like Van Der Zee, you'll see that Van Der Zee takes a picture of this group in the, in the 1920s, and it's called the Moorish Zion's Temple. Not more science, which is what Noble Juali started, but the Moorish Zion's, it's spelled Z-I-O-N-S-T. Sounding huh. very similar to science. And there's a narrative that says Noble Juali, when he left around 1929, that he left many of his followers with the Moorish Zion's Temple, which was a black Jewish congregation led by a man that I always have this. I feel this uh, connection to historically. His name is uh, Mordecai Herman. He was the, the leader of that congregation, Rabbi Herman. And there is actually in Israel today. An Israeli artist has done a, a portrait of him that is in Israel today at one of the marketplaces in Jerusalem that is, you know, this tribute to Rabbi Mordecai Herman and the Moorish Zion's Jews or the Moorish Jews, right? So there's a connection here between Islam and African Hebrewism. And we see it show up in the American context in groups like the Nubian Islamic Hebrews which when I was a kid, I would visit some of their teaching sessions or whatever, and they would make the statement that we are Hebrew enough to keep the Muslims away and Islamic enough to keep the Hebrews away. They were called the Islamic Hebrews, and they studied the Torah. They kept Shabbat, but they also did Juma prayer on Friday. And they had a famous huh. saying that Muhammad started the Sabbath, but he never finished it. 
right? And I've got pictures of them in the 80s and 90s where they're wearing these jalabiya, these uh, Muslim garbs, but then they have talit on, right? The, the Hebrew really? prayer shawls. But the, the point is, is that I've seen a consistent link between Black Jews and Black Muslims going all the way back. And so we have to understand that. Now, Aluda Equiano gives this narrative in his book. He writes about his life, right? He is the son of an African leader, chief or king, and he's caught up in the transatlantic slave trade. Now, later in his life, there were folks who tried to disavow his story. So he put out another edition of his book with folk who had known him uh, for a very long time, who signed their signatures saying, we vouch for this gentleman. And one of the first things he talks about in volume one, he opens up with a description of his native African culture. He's Igbo. And he talks about clothing and food and religious practices. And he likens the inhabitants of his people, the Igbo, which he spells E-B-O-E, not I-G-B-O as it's spelled today, to the early Jews and talks about the theory of why his people as Jews were actually darker than the Jews that he encountered in America because of the of, of the sun, taking you back to Song of Solomon 1-5, right? Anish Shakura, you know, I am black and beautiful, oh, daughters of Jerusalem, yeah. uh, look not upon me because my skin is black and the sun has shined upon me, right? Yeah. And, and so Ethiopia, meaning land of the burnt face or burnt skin. So Aluda Equiano survives the Middle Passage and talks about his heritage as an African Jew. And I think that that's something that we can't overlook, right? It's yeah. something that is extremely important. Now, also, you know, there is a book written by Sir Joseph Williams. And this book is, uh, some people have brought it back into print, but it's called Hebrewisms of West Africa. Uh, from Nile to Niger with the Jews. Now, I want you to think about this. You know, this this is a, a, a book that's written in the early 1900s that is years and, and years of research about these Hebrewisms that exist in West Africa. So the first thing is we have to establish that there were, you know, uh, Jews in West Africa. Zael Yemen and the Zael Yemen dynasty that comes from there. Uh, we talk about Eldad the Danite and his journeys throughout Africa and talking about Jews in West Africa, the kingdoms of Songhai, Mali, and Ghana all being connected in some way. And even this man, Mansa Musa, whose name means Chief Moses, right? So again, we, we, we can clearly establish Judaism in West Africa. So then when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, here's the rub, as one of my friends would say. We know, and the National Museum of African American Heritage and Culture um, has an exhibit that talks about African Muslims in early America, right? And so African Muslims in early America, they will tell you they're unsure of exactly how many were enslaved and transported. When we look at the movie Roots, right, this is mm -hmm. where many folks during the time when this movie came out really started to get in tune with Islam, and it gave Islam in America amongst African-Americans this big boom. But notice, there's always this connection between Hebrewism and Islam, 
or what Noble Jali called Islamism, which means that many times those folks in America had no understanding or idea of what was the difference between the two. Right. They couldn't right. tell the difference between the two. And we have narrative of folk who actually made the statement that they had no idea at all about Islam. Right. They had never heard of such a thing as Islam. They, they didn't understand what they called the Mohammedan religion. So anyone with a skull cap. Right. Uh, anyone that was facing the east when they prayed, anyone who was writing in a language that, that was completely different than what they knew during those times, they had no idea of whether these folks were Muslim or whether these folks were Hebrews. And being that we can show this connection, right? When Tariq the Great converts to Islam, the Hebrew Israelite author uh, Rudolf Windsor says in his book from Babylon to Timbuktu that he's the first. And these Ghanaian leaders to actually accept Islam and converts from the Hebrew religion. So when you can make the connection between Hebrewisms and Islamisms in West Africa, then we know during the course of 250 years or more, right, because Prince Henry the Navigator is messing around in the 15th century doing stuff right before it gets full blown. We know that somewhere along the line, folks were being picked up. Right. Yeah. Especially in areas in the Dahomey, et cetera, where we right. know that there right. were Jews. This, in my mind, begs a further question, knowing that the Africans on North American soil have faced a long history of prejudice and suppression and rights taken away and all, all of these things. And now when I go and when I start thinking about Jews or Hebrew Israelites as well, they also, this anti-Semitism idea has also been alive and well for a long time on North American soil. And so when I think of European Jews coming to North America and African Jews coming to North America, what is their relationship to each other? Does the the idea of lighter skin and darker skin build in tension even though they share the same Hebrewisms, the same background? Is there that kind of tension? Can we tell based on the historical books that we have? Do you mean in uh, pre-slave trade era or do you mean in early no. America? What do we Let's talk even post-slave. Okay. And so now we have African synagogues, black Jewish synagogues. Correct. And we have... Ashkenazi European synagogues. Okay. What is the relationship between the people? Well, I think it's interesting to note that in the interview with Capers Fune, Ralph Fune talks about in Chicago, these two men, right? Rabbi uh, Kano Stiffson and Rabbi David Lazarus, right? And these two men have what they call the colored synagogue. That's what it's called during this time in the 1920s. And I think it's around 1925, if I'm not mistaken. There is a black Jewish woman who goes into a white business collecting money for her synagogue. They see that she has on a Jewish pendant and they snatch it off of her neck. They call her a liar when she says that she's a Jew. They actually call the police on her and the authorities come. 
As a point of clarification, this is a black Jewish woman going into a white Jewish-owned business. So you can see how things get complicated. And what happens is Stifson and Lazarus have to go to court and they fight over this, right? And in the end, the ruling is on their behalf that they are a legitimate black Jewish organization and all the charges against them are dropped. Now, of course, the court doesn't give a ruling on whether they're actually Jews or not, but that's not important. They say, look, they're legitimate. They're an actual entity that's on record. And they were running a black Jewish synagogue in Chicago during this time. Hmm. You'll find that this is the kind of interaction that goes on from early on. Now, Mordecai Herman, when we, we don't know much about him, but the little we do know is that he spoke Yiddish and he was fluent in Hebrew and he studied Talmud and, you know, on the front of the synagogue, you you could see in the Hebrew where it says Talmud Torah, that they studied Torah and Talmud there. And so he was a cutting figure, as they say, during that time period. And he was interacting with a lot of different folk, right? But then you had this man, Rabbi Wentworth Matthew, who was seen as the chief rabbi of Black Jews early on. And he's given smicha or ordination by a man named Arnold Josiah Ford. Now, I have the smicha document that was given to me by Rabbi uh, Yehuda, Yehuda, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Ben Levi, who has produced, he's producing now a book that's going to be phenomenal. He does the prayer book for West African Jews, which is a, a great book that has the history in it, etc. But he's producing a book now with the history and he's put the pictures in color and it's just so beautiful. When we concluded the interview, Messiahu showed me a couple of these photos. They're gorgeous, absolutely beautiful, and like nothing I've ever seen. In Israel, Jerusalem in particular, I see some Ethiopian families walking around on Shabbat, but I've never actually seen a large collection of African-American families wearing Jewish tzitzit and prayer shawls walking down the sidewalk with a grandfather in front and sons and grandsons following. Again, another one of those times when I thought about the power of representation and of knowing that these stories are out there. But are we telling them? Are we even listening to them? The, the ordination papers we see comes directly from Ethiopia, from what are called the Kisim, who, who are the leaders, religious leaders of Beta Yisrael. And that's given to Rabbi Ford, who actually moves to Ethiopia, and then he gives smicha to Wentworth Matthew. Wentworth Matthew wanted to make connections with the Ashkenazi world. He wanted to produce that connection, but he was rebuffed. He was, he was dissed so many times that he ended up, he's one of those with the Hebrew Israelite piece that we're going to establish our own yeshiva. We're going to establish our own synagogues and we're not going to have anything to do with you at all. And he establishes the international board of rabbis and that yeshiva, which today still turns out rabbis to this day, whom Rabbi Kabers Fune of Chicago is the chief rabbi of that organization today that goes all the way back uh, to the early 1900s, right, in, in Harlem, New York. So, I mean, and there's so much there, you know, with this fight between 
folks who were just trying to live out their life as as Jews and make connections with Jews of different colors and get and get support. You know, how can we get Torah scrolls? How can we get Torahs for our congregations? And many times these connections fell through and the Ashkenazi Jews who were in positions of power you know, actually dismissed the Jews of color. I found in my own city, and I'm not going to say the name of the of the synagogue, but there's a synagogue in my city that I recently learned. I've known people from that synagogue since I was young, right? The synagogue was originally a Sephardi synagogue. And then there was a split between the Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews in the congregation over practice and business and theology And the Ashkenazi Jews took over the synagogue. And now today, it's only known as the Ashkenazi synagogue. No one even knows, few people know, that it actually was a Sephardi synagogue originally. And so, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews were the face and became the face of Judaism. And therefore, um, there has been this feeling of if you're not eating bagels and latkes, you know, if if you're not, you know, if you're not doing things the way we do it, then you're not Jewish. And that has been an ongoing experience for many Black Jews throughout our, our history here in America, though there are many Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardi Jews who are, who I'm very close with and have great relationships with. But that is, that's the you know, not the norm. Wow. I have so many more questions still, (laughs) primarily just because it's like you've opened our eyes to a whole huge swath of history that has always been there, but just not looked at by me. And I find it so fascinating and so grateful for all the work that you've done. Um, as a historian, I understand like you're you're doing so much more, but you're interested in the Jewish part, which I just am so fascinated by. So thank you for all your own private research that you've done just to to figure out who these people are and how did they really live and what struggles did they come up against. And thank you for sharing it so beautifully with all of us. I'm so grateful. Most welcome. It's been a pleasure. And these kind of conversations, because they're not had often, they just take long periods of time, you know, yeah. to, to cover the ground. And so yeah. I think as long as we can wet the proverbial whistle, as folks say, right, to get people uh, led to that water, and yeah. then hopefully they'll want to drink. There's a lot of information out and a lot of authors and a lot of books. And so, you know, seek it out. Uh, We're here. We have been here. We'll continue to be here. Bizrat Hashem, we will continue, you know, and, and, and pushing the culture and making sure that folks understand our heritage. So, you know, hallelujah. As we say, <laughs> all praises to Yah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, it's great, and I think with all of the like such rich information that you compacted into an hour conversation, I think there's the listening one or two or three or four times to kind of pull all these right. gems out, and then maybe we can just do this again, and we'll have hey. let's do a round two. That would yeah. be, that would I be have so no fun. problem. I have no problem with that, you know, and uh, with the help of the creator, we do that. I thank you so much for the work you do. I love your, your podcast. Oh, I listen to it regularly. And uh, you know, if Dr. Bantu, 
who's out there. I'd love to talk to you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll introduce you to. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Only after I concluded this interview did I find a couple of videos online hosted by Hebrew Union College addressing the experience of Jewish people of color. One conversation in particular was great, and I will add the link in the show notes, but then it's up to you to run all the rabbit trails. Did you realize that we are beginning our third year here on Context Matters? From time to time, I think back on all of the amazing people who have joined me here at the podcast table, and I'm amazed and then excited about where this can go. And I know I say it each week, but only because it's true. My Patreon team rocks. People like Linda Overall, Carol Lloyd, and Pastor Jack make sure that this podcast remains sustainable. And Pastor Jack has been here since the beginning. That's amazing. Thanks to all of you who are named and not named, because I seriously could not do this without you. I produced the episode, Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe and take care of each other and stay curious about the world around you. 